if they have 10, 15 years of dry season. And what they also said was that the average crop in Syria of even lentils had maybe 15 different kinds of local lentils in it. That way, if, if pests hit them, one strain might go down, but the rest would, would, would be resistant to it. Each one has its own properties. So that's really the problem that's been happening today. It's to do with the fact that standardized seed for uniform crops are so vulnerable to so many different things that when the crop goes under, the whole crop goes under, and then you've got problems. I'll be back with more after this break. downturn. 
There is therefore a real risk of a food crunch at some point in the future, and you better believe it, because they're going to bring it on. Because that's the way to get us all to our knees, into a new system, which would fall particularly hard on import-dependent countries and on poor people everywhere, the report states. Food prices are poised to rise again, it adds. The warning is made as agricultural ministers and United Nations officials gather from Monday in Madrid for a UN meeting on food security likely to conclude that last year's food crisis with almost 1 billion people hungry is far from over, and these are the same agencies that dumped all the standardized seeds across the planet. Remember that. The UN will warn ministers in Madrid that as the global financial crisis deepens, hunger is likely to increase under the impact of rising unemployment and lower remittances, according to three officials briefed ahead of the meeting. The prices of agricultural commodities such as rice and wheat jumped to a record high last year, triggering food riots from Haiti and Egypt to Bangladesh and Cameroon and prompting appeals for food aid for more than 30 countries in sub-Saharan Africa. But you, 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 what's their answer to all of this? You see how it all, you'll see how it all ties in together. And it says here, near the bottom, it's always near the bottom after they scared the bejesus out of you. And that's the whole intent of the, the article. Uh, it says, recommends the governments to invest more in agricultural production and an increase in international aid in this sphere too. Containing global warming will require an additional $175 billion in annual investment by 2020, according to a European Union draft paper, writes Joshua Schaffen in Brussels. The paper says much of the $175 billion, and then it's got $227 billion, uh, $175 billion, Euros, $227 billion uh, investment will have to be borne by the developed world. So the developed world, and see, this is right along with the GATT and the NAFTA treaties and all the other treaties, that the first world countries must basically bail out all the poor ones, bring them up to a certain standard, and that also is written in that the first world countries will start coming down. There'll be some happy medium as the water levels settle together. That's, that's the whole thesis on this. This is also for that tens of billions of euros in spending will be needed to help poorer countries prepare for even moderate warming. Some of the ways the EU proposes to raise those funds include require developing nations to pay for their annual carbon emissions. They're all hammering on this, and Obama, of course, is pushing this in the States, the carbon emissions, and levying taxes on aviation and maritime transportation. That's everything that comes into your country, all the food and everything. The EU should also expand its emissions trading system into a global carbon market. That's what the big boys are going to love dealing with this one. And explore the establishment of a multilateral insurance pool to help deal with natural disasters as a result from global warming. I hate using the term global warming. I just try to see changing the weather. The final paper to be released by the European Commission, the EU executive body on Wednesday sets out the bloc's proposition ahead of negotiations in Copenhagen this December aimed at creating a global agreement to fight climate change. So the whole, the whole outcome of it is uh, all the so-called first world countries are going to be taxed into the dirt for this, this big con. And last week I was going through many of the cons, the same group that's run the history of the last hundred years, have done in the past. 
So here we're into the next part of it, is to bring us all to our knees, to bring in a new economic system where we will ultimately serve the state. That's what it's about. It's astonishing. Last week, I talked about the revolution and how revolution has really been fairly continuous since the 1500s when the Rosicrucian societies broke out at that time in the court of Queen Elizabeth I and then pamphlets were plastered all over Paris the following century and then Germany too and other places talking about a new world order and that was taken up by other people that are well known in history including Adam Weishaupt who coined the term that was used on the steel of states the United States Novus Ordo Seclorum a new world order and it wasn't a grassroots thing it didn't come from the bottom no rebellion ever came from the public at the bottom you might, you might say a rebellion comes but not, not a revolution revolutions are planned because they want to succeed it takes sometimes a generation or two to plan the revolution all successful ones do it that way and I read from Bakunin who was one of the a professional revolutionary and this is an article that he wrote in the journal El Progress of Geneva in 1869 to give you a clue about the associations that were involved in actually promoted revolution it says in this epoch the bourgeoisie the bourgeoisie others say middle classes they mean upper middle classes in those days had created an international association a universal and formidable one Freemasonry it would be a substantial error to judge the Freemasonry of the last century or even that of the first part of the present century that's the 1800s by what it is today the middle class institution par excellence Freemasonry in its development in its growing power at first and later in its decadence represented in a way the development power and moral and intellectual decadence of the middle classes today fallen to the sad position of a senile old intriguer it's a useless sometimes malevolent and always ridiculous nullity whereas before 1830 and especially before 1793 having gathered together at its core with very few exceptions all the minds of the elite it was elite movement revolution was from the elite the most ardent hearts the proudest spirits the most audacious personalities it had constituted an active powerful and truly beneficial institution now there are many books of the period written and before that too that, that uh, was quite open about the fact that Freemasonry was through Freemasonry and associations and the coffee houses in France and so on that they, they gradually worked the people up getting them ready for revolution it's no, it's no secret the United States was founded by professional, I call them professional Freemasons, active Freemason, Freemasons. And you can see there, there are symbols everywhere. But, but this Bakunin goes on. It is known that all the principal actors of the first revolution were Freemasons, and that when this revolution broke out, it was able to find, thanks to Freemasonry, friends and devoted and powerful collaborators in all other countries. And that's true. Thomas Paine, 
was a professional revolutionary. He came over from England to take part in the American Revolution. Once it was over, he went to France to help them set up and run their revolution. In fact, it was assuredly of great help in its victories, but it's equally clear that the triumph of the revolution killed Freemasonry. For once the revolution had largely fulfilled the aspirations of the middle classes and had enabled it to displace the old nobility, the middle class went on quite naturally after having been an exploited and oppressed class for such a long time to become in its turn a privileged class, a class of exploiters, oppressive, conservative and reactionary in nature, the most reliable friend and supporter of the state. And I'm going to go into this deeper after the following break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and I'm cutting through Matrix. History is always presented as little little factions unrelated to the next faction, but nothing is further from the truth. We've had really perpetual revolution, sometimes bloody, but mainly through cultural alterations for centuries. And even though Bakunin decries masonry as becoming you know, fat and obsolete, he's not telling quite the truth because there are factions of it that kept going. And the pre-masonry was always subservient to the upper classes, the, the aristocracy, you might say. And you go to the history through Mackay's Encyclopedia of Freemasonry, you'll see just that. You'll find out who is supposed, supposedly the heads of the Grand Lodge of England, for instance. And yet, at all times through history, you'll always find that it doesn't matter what side you think you're on, there's another hand controlling both of them and guiding it because it's the outcome that's necessary for the thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. The synthesis is the goal. The conflict between the first two brings you to that goal. That's the whole point of it in conflict. And it was the intelligentsia that had been behind all the major, revol- the successful revolutions. When the people at the bottom riot, that's what it is. It's an unorganized riot. It's a last desperate stance to keep something that's been taken from them, generally. And if we don't understand uh, that it's, this is truly an ongoing intellectual war, which is very obvious today, then we'll never get the points at all. We'll never understand it. Because if you watch how the big foundations operate today, they use all the graduates of the universities, they fund the universities. The universities in turn become authorities and they advise governments. And they're all on board across the whole planet on the same agenda. Go into the writings of Sir Thomas Huxley, the grandfather of Aldo Huxley. Sir Thomas Huxley took up the banner of Darwinism 
and Darwinism is worth a good look at because it was a religion, a religion created to destroy once again all that was to bring in something new. And they're still running on Darwinism today. Sir Thomas Huxley uh, recruited a lot of well-known writers of the period, including H.G. Wells, and trained them at the Red Tie School, Red for Revolution. And their whole goal was to bring more intellectuals into the system for, for the revolution, to bring in a new world order. What is a new world order? What does it really mean? What they mean is that, as Jefferson called them, the natural aristocracy had the right to rule the world. The intelligentsia is what they're talking about. During the Cold War, they finished around 1989, I think, supposedly when the Berlin Wall came down, you'll find that pretty well all the spies, all of them in fact, there were double spies, double agents who worked for the Soviets. And before that, going to Adolf Hitler's Germany, the ones who worked for Adolf Hitler, all came from Oxford and Cambridge. They'd all been to Eton. They all came from the privileged class, not from the, the bottom ranks, the lower classes. Never happened. Constant revolution by the intelligentsia. And it's the young minds that are recruited at universities that's still ongoing for revolution. And they don't understand that very old people are conditioning their minds and giving them what they think is their generation's revolution. This is the constant technique that's always used. It's a planned future we're going into. And Sir Thomas Huxley in his own writings laid out the agenda in his book, Man Stands Alone. He said that the problems of the future will be overpopulation. That's always been a mandate for this. Eugenics is another thing. He talked about the creation of imbeciles and how many generations of imbeciles do you want? He said man is just an animal, basically, and would have to be treated as such. But he also called, talked about something called spirit, even though he was a an atheist or a humanist, he called about spirit. Well, he was talking about the Masonic revolutionary spirit of fire. That's what they mean by that when they refer to spirit. And where does the whole origin of fire come from? Ancient, ancient symbology. For the illumined ones, fire destroys that, which is substance and releases a heat and a light at the same time. It alters everything, destroys all that was, but at the same time is giving something off that is new. It stands for pure, brilliant intellect as well. There's a book that goes into this by James H. Billington called Fire in the Minds of Men. And he was the official librarian for Congress, so he was no conspiracy nut. And I'll read a bit of this when I come back from this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. 
I am Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. I'm going to read an introduction of Fire in the Minds of Men by James H. Billington, Origins of the Revolutionary Faith. To say he was, at the time of writing it, he was the official librarian for Congress. And just before I go, I read this actually, I'd like to talk about, or just mention, I'm going to leave a link at the end of the show, where you can see how the London School of Economics gave us the trickle-down theory and how they ran, supposedly, the economy, this great intellectual group. It was attached to Oxford, of course. I think Oxford even set it up. Everything comes from Oxford and Cambridge. But it's uh, quite interesting and worth a, a little look at. It explains the theory of the trickle-down theory of economics. Back to this book. It says, this book seeks to trace the origins of a faith, perhaps the faith of our time. Modern revolutionaries are believers, no less committed and intense than were the Christians or Muslims of an earlier era. What is new is the belief that a perfect, secular, that's worldly order, will emerge from the forcible overthrow of traditional authority. This inherently implausible idea gave dynamism to Europe in the 18th century, in the 19th century, and has become the most successful ideological expert of the West to the world in the 20th century. It's not a story of revolutions, but of revolutionaries, the innovative creators of a new tradition. The historical frame is the century and a quarter that extends from the, war, the winnings of the French Revolution in the late 18th century to the beginnings of the Russian Revolution in the 20th century. The theatre was Europe and the industrial era. The main stage were journalistic offices with great European cities within the cities. Because, you see, intelligentsia and journalism all worked, always worked hand in hand, as they still do today. And their main method was propaganda. So propaganda was not invented by Bernays by any means. It was well understood as a science long before. At centre stage stood the characteristic 19th century European revolutionary, a thinker lifted up by ideas, not a worker or peasant bent down by toil. He was part of a small elite whose story must be told from above, much as it may displease those who believe that history in general and revolutionary history in particular is basically made by socio-economic pressures from below. The people below are always used for revolutions, but they don't design them. It's always an elite who does it for you. This elite focus does not imply indifference to the mass human suffering which underlay, underlay the era of this narrative. It reflects only the special need to concentrate here on the spiritual thirst of those who think rather than on the material hunger of those who work. For it was passionate intellectuals who created and developed the revolutionary faith. This work seeks to explain concretely the tradition of revolutionaries, not to explain abstractly the process of revolution. My approach has been inductive rather than deductive, explorative rather than definitive, and an attempt to open up rather than cover the subject. My general conclusions can be stated simply at the outset and for the sake of argument more bluntly than they may appear in the next that follows. The revolutionary faith was shaped not so much by the critical rationalism of the French Enlightenment, as is generally believed, as by the occultism and proto-romanticism of Germany. Occultism, 
that which was hidden. This faith was incubated in France during the revolutionary era within a small subculture of literary intellectuals who were immersed in journalism, the media, fascinated by secret societies and subsequently infatuated with ideologies as a a secular surrogate for religious belief. Professional revolutionaries who first appeared during the French Revolution sought above all radical simplicity. Their deepest conflicts revolved around the simple words of their key slogan, liberty, equality, fraternity. It's funny because if you go into Albert Pike's Morals and Dogma from the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, you'll find that he goes through those three words and then he tells you that no thing could possibly exist even though they used it to get the masses to go through revolutions for them. It says here, liberty had been the battle cry of earlier revolutions in 16th century Holland, 17th century England, 18th century America, which produced complex political structures to, to limit tyranny, such as separating powers, constituting rights, legitimizing federation. Well, that's getting lost and tossed out the window now. The French Revolution also initially invoked similar ideas, but the new and more collectivist ideals of fraternity and equality soon arose to rival the older concept of liberty. The words nationalism and communism, the older concept of liberty, um, were first invented in the 1790s to define the simpler, more sublime, seemingly less selfish ideals of fraternity and equality, respectively. The basic struggle that subsequently emerged amongst committed revolutionaries was between advocates of national revolution for a new type of fraternity and those of social revolution for a new type of equality. They always have, they always split you into two, even though you're on, you think you're on the same side. They'll always do that, get into factions. The French national example and republican ideal dominated the revolutionary imagination throughout the first half of the 19th century, exiled French intellectuals from Poland and Italy largely fashioned the dominant concept of revolutionary nationalism, inventing most modern ideas on guerrilla violence and wars of national liberation, expressing the essential emotional ideal best in mythic histories, vernacular poetry, and operatic melodrama. They used all of the arts, as they still do today, as a main method of propaganda. Because since people don't really think through things, don't reason through fiction, but you'll find they're very, very influenced through fiction, emotion. So emotion fixed with a topic will stay in the mind, and you'll go along with the emotion that you saw in the play, etc. Rival social revolutionaries began to challenge the romantic nationalists after the revolutions of 1830, and the socialist tradition increasingly predominated after the forming of the First International in 1864 and the movement of the revolutionary cause from French to German and Russian leadership. Social revolutionaries expressed their essential rationalistic ideal best in prose pamphlets and prosaic organizations. Their hidden model was the impersonal and dynamic machine of factory industry rather than the personalized but static lodge of the Masonic aristocracy. The Masonic aristocracy. No less fateful than the schism between national and social revolutionaries was a conflict among social revolutionaries that began in the 1840s between Marx and Pruden. The 
The former's focus was on destroying the capitalist economic system and it clashed with the latter's war on the centralized bureaucratic state. If you notice the system that's coming in now is a new economic system and it's been, it's been shouted from the highest hilltops in the last few weeks and it will be a new economic system, a planned society is what they're taking us to where those at the top will live in incredible luxury, even though technically a lot of them will still serve the state. But they won't have to pay for anything. They'll still live in palaces and have servants, etc. The word intelligentsia and the thirst for ideology migrated east from Poland to Russia and from a national to a social revolutionary cause. So the Russian student radicals of the 1860s who developed a new aesthetic type of terrorism, Lenin drew both on this Russian tradition of violence and on German concepts of organization to create the Bolshevism that eventually brought the revolutionary tradition out of the wilderness and into power. The revolutionary faith developed in 19th century Europe only within those societies that had not previously legitimized ideological dissent by breaking with medieval forms of religious authority and two, modified monarchical power by accepting some form of organized political opposition in Northern Europe and North America where these conditions were met by Protestant and parliamentary traditions the revolutionary faith attracted almost no indigenous adherents that the revolutionary tradition can be seen as a form of political ideological opposition that arose first against authority in Catholicism in France, Italy and Poland and then against other religiously based autocracies in Lutheran Prussia and Orthodox Russia. What they did, you see, first to change everything, they looked at the system as it was and the main opponent at one time, in fact the only real opponent was the Roman Catholic system and therefore they went to war with that first. Very intense wars you have to look at the histories of the wars, the religious wars, to see how horrific and, how, and for how long they went on. Once that was done, the same groups that had courted any opposition and eventually the Protestant sects, they used them too. You have to destroy them as well in turn. So you're used and then you're destroyed because the goal is a completely different new world order than the one you think. That's why you don't follow leaders do your homework and know what on earth is going on. It's interesting too that Lenin himself, who took over from Mazzini, now Mazzini was a revolutionary professional again trained, and he also took over as the head of masonry for one point from Albert Pike. And who took over from him was Lenin, who then set up the Bolshevik ultimately called the Soviet system in Russia. I've also gone through the fact that the Royal Institute of International Affairs was heavily involved all during that era. The Milner Group and those boys were heavily involved in it. Russia was called the second great experiment. The United States was the first. As they studied what they'd done, the kind of outcomes they had and would they suit the purposes or would they have to go further? How would they get to their next objective? That's why they're called experiments. Who does experiments? Scientists do experiments. Think of the words that you read. Before
pyrotechnic, the chronicle, the drama, the dogmas, and the disputes of this new secular religion in the making, and it is a religion, it's important to linger on the mystery and majesty of faith itself. The heart of revolutionary faith, like any faith, is fire, back to fire again. Ordinary material transformed into extraordinary form, quantities of warmth suddenly changing the quality of substance. If we do not, not, not know where fire is, what fire is, we do know what it does. It burns, it destroys life, but it also supports as it is a source of heat, light, and above all, fascination. Fascination. Man who works with fire as Homo Faber also seems foredoomed in his freedom to play with it as Homo Ludens. Now, if you remember, those that have not been so, so jaded by all the, the, the recent slaughter that's gone on across the planet, if you can remember the slaughter at Waco, when the government set people in the BETF out to just to wipe out a whole bunch of families and children, that was, a, a, that was literally a symbolic act as well uh, to tell everybody about it, that religion is over. You do, no, you do no longer have any special privileges. It's over. And not only that, they hate you. They utterly hate you. Those who rule hate you. And at the end, when they, when they set fire to it all and burned the whole place down with the people in it, there's videos out there where you'll see the BETF bowing to the flames. Ask what kind of brotherhood they belong to bowing to the flames. They love fire. Our particular history, our chapter in history, unfolds at a time of physical transformation in Europe that was almost as momentous as the first discovery of fire must have been in the midst of antiquity. The Industrial Revolution was permitting men to unleash fire to machines and to unleash firepower on each other with a force undreamed of in earlier ages. In the midst of those fires appeared the more elusive flame that Dostoevsky described in his most searching work of fiction ever written about the revolutionary movement, and that was The Possessed. He wrote about it in fictional work, but there's more written often about in fiction than they'll tell you in reality. And the story basically was about a, a small provincial town that was suddenly inspired by new ideas. And then afterwards, a fire broke out, and a local official shouted, at night, in the middle of the night, the fire is in the minds of men. And that's hence the title of this book. Dostoevsky was writing under the impact of two great fires that disturbed him deeply and heralded the transfer of revolutionary leadership from France to Russia. These fires had broken out in Imperial St. Petersburg in the spring of 1861, where the emancipation of the Serfs seemed to have inflamed rather than calmed passions, and in Imperial Paris ten years later, where the flaming defeat of the Paris Commune ended forever the era of romantic illusions. The flame of faith had begun its migrations a century earlier, when some European aristocrats transferred, transferred their lighted candles from Christian altars to Masonic lodges. The flame of occult alchemists, which had promised to, to turn dross into gold, reappeared at the center of new circles. Now, what did I call those groups within the Royal of International Affairs, they call them circles. Seeking to recreate a golden age, to recreate a golden age, you'll hear that over and over. 
with the idealists of the day and past times as well to recreate a golden age. Bavarian Illuminists conspiring against the Jesuits, French Philadelphians against Napoleon, Italian charcoal road burners against the Habsburgs. When the most important anti-Neapolitic conspiracy was ridiculed for attempting to use as a lever something which is only a match, as leader replied that with a match, or with a match, one has no need of a lever. One does not lift up the world. One burns it. You burn the world. The leader in spreading the conspiracy to Italy soon noted that the Italian flame had spread the fire of freedom, that's what they called it, the fire of freedom, to the most frozen land of Petersburg. There, the first Russian revolution occurred in December 1825. Its slogan was, From the spark comes the flame. It was originated by the first man to predict an egalitarian social revolution in the 18th century, Sodian Marikil, and revived by the first man to realize such a revolution in the 20th century. That was Lenin. He used it as the epigram for his journal. The journal is called The Spark. Always fire. Always fire. Our current mythic model for revolutionaries, early romantics, the young Marx, the Russians of Lenin's time, was Prometheus. Prometheus, remember, was he who stole the fire from the gods for the use of mankind. The Promethean faith of revolutionaries resembled in many respects the general modern belief that science would lead men out of darkness into light, a world run by a scientific elite. Back in a moment after these messages. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix, continuing with uh, some of the book Fire in the Minds of Men by Billington. But there was also the more pointed millennial assumption that on the new day that was dawning, the new day that was dawning, and there were lots of paintings with the sun rising. You'll see that in, when uh, the portrait of Benjamin Franklin toasting the new president, the first president of the United States. And he says, what he says in his own works, mind you, as Benjamin Franklin, that is, in his own letters, he says, we toast this grand master of these United States. Getting back to the book, it says, they said that the sun would never set, meaning light, intellect, would always rule from then on. Earlier during the French upheaval was born a solar myth of the revolution, suggesting that the sun was rising on a new era in which darkness would vanish forever, meaning ignorance. This image became implanted at a level of consciousness that simultaneously interpreted something real and produced a new reality. The new reality they sought was radically secular and stridently simple. The ideal was not the balanced complexity of the new American Federation, but the occult simplicity of its great seal, an all-seeing eye atop a pyramid over the words Novus Ordo Seclorum. In search of primal natural truths, revolutionaries looked back to pre-Christian antiquity, adopting pagan names like Anaxagoras, Chomet and Anacharsis, Clutes, idealizing above, idealizing above all the semi-mythic Pythagoras as the model intellect turned revolutionary and the Pythagorean belief in prime numbers, 
That's how they communicate geometric forms and the higher harmonies of music. That's the tones. In fact, from Pythagoras, you get tongue, the weight measurement, the tone, the sound, etc. Many of the same Strasbourg musicians who played uh, La Marseillaise in 1792 had introduced Mozart's magic flutes. Mozart was a Freemason, and if you've ever seen the magic flute, you'll see an awful lot in that particular show. To French audiences in the same city only a few months earlier, and Mozart's illuminist message seemed to explain the fuller meaning of the jour de gloire, the day of glory that Roger de Lee's anthem had proclaimed. In the anthem it says, The rays of the sun have vanquished the night. The powers of darkness have yielded to light. The rising sun brought heat as well as light, for the fire was generally lit not at high noon on a tabula rasa by some philosopher king, but rather by some unknown guest arriving at midnight amidst the excesses of Don Giovanni's banquet, communism. The label Lenin finally adopted it was invented not by the great Rousseau, but by a Rousseau of the gutter, the indulgent fetishist, a nocturnal streetwalker in a pre-revolutionary Paris, Restif de la Bretonne. That's the revolutionary label that now controls the destiny of more than one billion people in the contemporary world sprang from the erotic imagination of an ascetic writer. And by the way, you'll find an awful lot of their main writers were highly neurotic. Some had been kicked out of different countries for literally exposing themselves, although they couldn't help it, it seems. And they were the greatest propagandists of all that were used. Looking to Voltaire, very interesting history. I hear the music coming in for tonight. And so from Hamish myself, from Ontario, Canada, it's good night. And may your God or your gods go with you.